Well, good morning. Let me uh, go ahead and jump right to the end of our message today and tell you that at the end of today's message, we're going to give you a chance at all of our campuses uh, to join up with one of our small groups here at the summit. Uh, I will tell you that is not the only, by far, the only application of today's message, but it is one of the primary ones. Because I'm going to show you today from the book of Proverbs, hopefully, uh, why friendship, why friendship is so important and why friendship is so strategic in our lives for the purposes of God and how you can have and be a good friend. And then at the end, I'm going to direct you at all of our campuses to, uh, to sign up for one of our small groups. Now, again, that's not going to be the only application of today's message, but it's one of the big ways that we do friendship here at the summit. You see, we believe that approximately 82.7% of what God wants to do in your life, He does best in a small group. And we believe that if your main experience with Christianity is hearing a weekly religious lecture and, uh, and singing some God songs, then you are only experiencing a fraction of what God wants to do in your life. The heart of Christianity and the heart of this church is in our small groups, and that's where all the best stuff happens in our church. Obviously, our church has grown fairly big. I think last weekend we had nearly 4,000 people on our campuses. You see, but at the same time that we grow big, we also want to grow small. And small groups is how that happens, thus the name, okay? Right? It's how we grow small together. Um, it's how you know each other. It's how you discover your ministry gifts. It's how you take off in your walk with God. Our goal at this church is we want everybody in one. Right now, we've got about a third of you guys in one, which is a lot. That's well over 1,000 people, okay? I don't want to, you know, poo-poo that number. But, but that means about two-thirds of us um, have yet to go, and we want all of you in one. And today, we're going to take a huge step in that direction. All right, now, before I get into it, real quick, let me give you a little preview of, uh, of next week, Okay. Uh, I know next week is Labor Day, uh, but you may not want to, uh, to miss what we're going to talk about next week as we're going to look at, uh, as I studied through Proverbs and made a list of the things that, that came up through Proverbs, this one made the list. We're going to look at what Proverbs says about sex. Now, I'll go ahead and warn you, this is not the week to bring your grandma to visit our church for the first time, all right, because, uh, you know, we're going to talk about sex, baby, all right? As I have been studying the book of Proverbs um, I was surprised to learn that Solomon saved his most sultry sexual images, not for Song of Solomon, which I had thought, but for Proverbs, okay? And most of us don't get it because we don't understand Hebrew imagery. Uh, but you come next week and you'll find out what I'm talking about. Hebrew delight, baby, all right? Next week. All right, when I was making that list of what I wanted to talk about from Proverbs, I put friendship on that list because it just comes up so many times in Proverbs. Uh, but I'll be honest with you, I was a little bit nervous uh, because, honestly, it felt, un just, you know, total disclosure here, full disclosure, it felt, it just felt kind of lame to talk about friendship. Like it was sort of like a Mr. Rogers neighborhood kind of sermon where, you know, we'd all get in touch with our feelings and, and be vulnerable with each other and, and close by hugging and holding hands and singing, you know, friends are friends forever or, or whatever, right? And I know that for some of you that actually sounds appealing, but... But for a lot of us, especially some of us guys, that sounds about as appealing as a proctology exam. All right, so that's going to be actually my first point. You ready? Here it is. Number one, friendships are very, 
very important in the Bible, especially in the book of Proverbs. Throughout Proverbs, Solomon talks about how essential friendship is for your life. Proverbs 18.24 is a good place to start. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. The word sticks in Hebrew is, is, is a great word. It's the word that often gets translated cleaves. Like in Genesis 2, when it says that God made man and woman to cleave to one another, that is almost a shocking image he gives you. It's not at all sexual, obviously. But he is simply saying that there is a type of friendship that has a bond that is unbelievably strong. All right, here's another one, Proverbs 17:10. Do not forsake your own friend. Don't even go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a friend nearby than a brother far away. What's interesting in both of these passages is that Solomon is saying that friendship is more valuable in some ways even than family. You, I mean, do you see that? That's pretty remarkable when you consider how family-oriented Hebrew culture was. Family was everything to the Jewish people. And he's saying friendship can bring some things into your life that family can't bring. Some things that marriage will not even really bring. You see, friendships, unlike family, come from mutual choice. You don't choose your family, and your family usually doesn't choose you. But you choose your friends, and they choose you, and that choice has to be mutual or, you know, it's, it's awkward, right? Ever had that happen where, you, you know, somebody chooses you as a friend, you don't choose them, and they're always like, hey, buddy, and you're like, oh, I didn't really choose you. You know, it's like some, like some kind of cable guy, you know, a thing in your life. It's just, you know, it doesn't work. Friendships in Christ... You see, he's saying can in some ways go deeper and be more meaningful even than, than family. It's interesting to me, when you take a look at what Jesus talked about with his disciples right before he died, it was friendship. I mean, you'd think that what Jesus talked about right before his death would be one of the most things that was most important to him, right? Well, that's right. He was talking about friendship right before his death. John 14 through 17, you look at how much it comes up. Friendship, friendship, friendship. In his last prayer for them, John 17, Jesus prayed, Father, let these disciples of mine become one, just like we, God the Father, and the Holy Spirit and me, like we are one. In other words, one of the primary goals that Jesus had in his death was to create a community of friends that in some ways would resemble the Trinity itself. You see, the doctrine of the Trinity which is that God exists eternally as one being in three persons, means that God has existed eternally as a community of friends. That's one of the things, by the way, that makes Christianity different from every other religion. Other religions teach that God created us because He was, was lonely or bored or He needed a buddy. But the doctrine of the Trinity means, no, God has dwelt in perfect friendship for all eternity. He created us not because He was lonely and He needed a friend. He created us so He could share His love, the love that existed eternally in the Trinity, so He could share it with us. So when we experience friendship, we are experiencing a dimension of God. And on the flip side, to be isolated without friends is to be very unlike God and very unlike how He created us to be. We're missing something that he made in us as part of his image. In fact, do you remember, you remember the first time that not good was used in the Bible? It was when God looked at man and said, it's not good that man should be alone. 
So God made a little naked friend for him. And they were the first community, the first little nudist colony, right? And we had community with each other and with God. But then because of our sin, we were cursed and went back to being alone living primarily for ourselves and protecting our own little interests and back to the domain of not good, which was the domain of alone and thinking and living in isolation. So one of the primary goals of Jesus' work on the cross was restoration of the friendship that we were supposed to have with each other and with God. I want you to catch this, okay, and not miss it. All right, so let me just say it really plainly in case you hadn't, hadn't caught it yet. The essence of Christian love is expressed in friendship. You see, a lot of times we think Christian love, and we think about giving money to little kids in Africa or whatever, right? and that's important. But Christian love is best expressed first in loving our friends. Jesus said, in fact, by this will all men know that you are my disciples, by your love for one another. This is the distinguishing characteristic, Jesus says, of my people. They're great friends with each other. In the New Testament alone, there are 58 what we call one another commands. Love one another. Care for one another. Pray for one another. Encourage one another. Share with one another. And 53 others. Right? Jesus died to create a community of friends who would do these things with one another. And that is the vision of this church not a big, huge audience on Sunday morning, right? Not a group of people who come and hear great music and, and get coffee in the lobbies. And That's not the vision of our church. The vision of our church is a community of friends that do all 58 of these things with one another, right? And while I'm on a roll, let me just point one other thing out. Christian mission. When we talk about Christian mission, Christian mission is essentially making friends of people on the outside, you see, a lot of times I say Christian mission, and you think uh, of, giving kid, of giving money, again, to kids in Africa or, or taking trips to serve soup to homeless people or build huts for you know, the Guatemalans, and, and then we rush back to our hotel and we put Purell in our hands and, and come back to America and think we serve Jesus on the mission field. And those things have their place, all right? But Jesus' mission, think about him. Jesus' mission to earth was to come and do what? He came and made himself a friend of sinners. He made us his friends. Some of us like to think, you see, we like to think of ourselves as involved in the mission of God, but we don't know any non-believing friends. That is the mission of God, to make friends with people who are far from God, whether those are people in Africa or people across the hall. So friendship is very important. It is the heart of the gospel. And before I move to the next point, let me just you know, kind of get us to note together that friendship is not really valued much at all in our culture, right? At least, you know, not compared to things like romance and sex. You don't believe me? Just do a computer search on, on friendship and compare that to what you would get back if you did one on sex. Or on second thought, you probably shouldn't do one on sex, but you get my, the idea, right? If you do one on romance and sex, you get so Just think about Hollywood. Think about how much more movies and music and magazines talk about sex and romance than they do friendship or celebrity news. Nobody cares about who is friends with who in Hollywood, right? I mean, nobody, nobody, talks, about who, you know, nobody talks about who is friends with who. They all talk about who is, is sleeping with who. They're like, what? You know, nobody says, what, Ben Affleck is friends with George Clooney now? You know, and give them a little joint name like Borge, you know, Ben and Joy. They don't do that, all right? 
Here's why. Here's why. Here's, here's my theory, okay? Here, here's why. We don't talk about that much. Sociologists for the last 30 years have noted that there is something that is happening very unusual in American relationships with each other. They call it the commodification of social relationships. Here's what that means. A commodity is something that you buy or sell. And when you buy or sell something, you enter into a relationship with the person that you buy it from, but that relationship is not based on your enjoyment of that person. It's based on the fact that they provide a service for you. You may actually get to know them and you may like them, but if they don't deliver for you, then you, you know, go somewhere else. If you have a favorite coffee shop that you go to, right, and you actually get to know the people and they know your name and you like them, it's all great, right, until all of a sudden, you know, the coffee doesn't taste good anymore or they jack their prices up or you see rats running around or, you know, whatever. At that point, you're like, hey, relationship or no relationship, I'm going somewhere else where they give me what I want. And what sociologists say is, over the last 30 years, that concept of commodity has slipped into a domain that it's never really been before in, in history. And that is in social relationships. I enter into a relationship with somebody else because I need to get something from them. And if I don't get it, then I walk. Whether that's marriage or church or friendship, people are just a means to an end. We have commodified everything. Well, the more that happens, the less we talk about friendship. Because real friends are not really a means to anything. They are the end. Right? You know and enjoy them just for themselves. And when we commodify our relationships, we lose something that God has intended for our lives. About 50 years ago, C.S. Lewis, or 40 years ago, excuse me, said this in his book, The Four Loves. He says, because we don't really value friendship, Friendship is usually the relationship that gets squeezed out of our lives first. We continue, most of us, family relationships. We continue work relationships. He said, but you don't continue friendships, especially, I might add, for men. You know it's true. After a guy gets over the age of 30, there are incredibly few guys that actually have genuine friends over the age of 30. Now, I want to show you why that is so detrimental to our lives, and that's the second point. And that is what makes friendships so important. What is it that makes friendships so important? All right, here's three little things under this. Number one, friendships form us, Proverbs says. Friendships are the most significant forming influence on our lives. Proverbs 13, 20, take a look at this. He who walks with wise men will be himself wise. But the friend or the companion of fools shall be destroyed. By the way, that's not even saying that God will destroy you. It's just saying that if you're a companion of fools, you'll become a fool and you'll destroy yourself. Years ago, I heard a guy say that if you want to know what you'll look like in five years, just look at the books you're reading and the people you're hanging out with today. And that will give you a picture of where you'll be in five years. That's what this verse is saying. Now, let me ask this. Why is that true? Why is it that our friends, our immediate community, have such an incredible power over what we become? Well, again, let me draw from sociologists here for a minute, or psychologists. It's something they call the incredible power of the need for acceptance in our lives. We have this internal need to be accepted, and that need is so strong that it makes us Sometimes unconsciously, it's like the law of gravity, conform to the people around us, right? Now, I mean, again, this is not hard to, to, to imagine. Uh, I, I could illustrate it half a dozen ways. I'll pick two or three here. 
Um, um, the, uh, I was watching one of those punk video shows the other night, okay, uh, you know, where they, they play pranks on people and they get it on tape. Uh, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen in my life, um, this particular one. It wasn't the actual punk one with the Josh guy. It was a different one, but same concept. And what they did is they, um, at this one particular stage, they filmed these unsuspecting people um, who were not in on this little deal. Um, well, I'll, just, I'll tell you one of them. Um, one of the guys gets on an elevator, okay? He's all by himself, gets on the elevator. There's a camera in the elevator. He doesn't know it, all right? Well, the elevator begins to go up, and one by one, people get on the elevator, but they're all in on it, on what's going on. And when they walk onto the elevator, they all turn to the wall where there's no door, the back, and they stand, all like, nose first up there. And as it's going up, one by one, people get on, and all of them do this, all right? After five people do this, the original guy is like, you know, he turns around and he puts his, because he's like, well, I want to be different, you know. Um, another one, they did this in a doctor's office. Um, guy walks in. There's a bunch of people in there. They're all in on it. He's not. They walk in, and one by one, each one of them gets up and does something just truly erratic. You know, walks over and just like, I remember one of them was ripped a page off of a calendar uh, that the doctor had hanging up in his office and goes and sits down. And then one by one, they do it. Sure enough, six or seven people, this guy, you know, kind of stands. At first, he looks at them like they're strange. And then he stands up and he walks over and he rips off a page off the calendar and goes and sits down. Right? The very best one on, on this show, my favorite one, was um, guy walks into a doctor's office, different guy, different doctor's office. Everybody's sitting there one by one. I kid you not. One by one, they all get up and strip down to their underwear. <laughs> Take all their, you know, just their underwear. Sure enough, until he's, guy gets up after a while, after everybody else is in their underwear, t- takes all his clothes off and sits there in his underwear because it's like, hey, I don't want to be different. I don't know why I'm doing this. This is humiliating, but, hey, it's more humiliating to be different. Um, all right, one more. I, um, that's all I, I lied. Not, here's one more. Years ago, this is not from that show. This is uh, an article I was reading. Years ago, scientists were trying to decide why fish swam in schools. Okay, so they isolated the part of the brain that caused the fish to swim in schools. So they took one of these poor little fish, and they did a partial lobotomy on that fish. All right, they cut out the part of the brain that they believed influenced it to swim in schools, right? Do you know what happened? They, they put it back in. They put it back in the water. Sure enough, the fish could still swim, and the fish did not swim in school. In the school, he swam by himself. But do you know what happened? The rest of the fish followed that fish. A brainless fish was leading the pack. And I read that, and I thought that is a great explanation for how bad start in high school. Right? Some guy turns his hat around sideways, and for a while, everybody's like, weirdo. And then one by one, everybody does it because we want to be different like everybody else. You know? The new cool thing is to put a safety pin through your nose. Sign me up! You know? It's just, it's just, it's just, it's the power of the need for acceptance over us. Now, you can do one of two things with that. Right? The first thing you can do is you can say, hey, you shouldn't be influenced by peer pressure. Don't bend to your friends. Make your own decisions. And that is certainly very important, and you ought to say that. Or just as important, however, this is the second thing you could do, and it's just as important and just as biblical, you can get new friends around yourself so that the natural internal gravity pulling you to be like the people around you is going the right direction. That's what Proverbs is saying. If you walk with wise men, you'll be wise. But the friend of fools will be destroyed. You know, I still do a decent amount of, of stuff with high school, and I'll go and speak at different student camps. I will tell you this, all right? 
And this is not like scientific or biblical. It's just in my observation after doing this for 16, 17 years. I have never seen a kid make a decision for Christ at one of these camps I've been at. Never. That actually stuck with it if it did not affect immediately the people that he he hung around in the sense that he changed many of those friends. I've seen kids make some unbelievably sincere decisions. Come out, you know, come down to to the altar, blubber, snot, cry their eyes out, promise never to sin again, promise to be missionaries for the rest of their life, and based on everything that it looks like, it looks like they're totally sincere, but if it did not immediately affect their social relationships, if they did not change their friends, then it never sticks, at least in my experience. And so I tell them, if you are serious about walking with Christ, then one of the first things you will do is change that set of friends that you hang around. Now, I know that some of you hear that, and you're like, but wait a minute, shouldn't we be friends with outsiders? Right? I mean, did you just make that point? Yes. Okay, but here's how that works. Let me explain this. Right, I get this from a guy named Andy Stanley, who said this better than I, I've heard it explained anywhere else. He said, really, you've got to see all your friends as in one of three categories. He says, see your, your friends in concentric circles. You've got your circle of intimacy. These are your closest friends. If you're married, it's your spouse, obviously. Um, if you're, you're not married but you're dating somebody, it's your boyfriend or your girlfriend. He said that circle of intimacy, he says that's got to be believers because they are the ones who form your life. Around that circle is what we call the circle of influence. These are people that are, while they're not necessarily your most intimate friends, you are significantly influencing them and they are significantly influencing you. You know who they are. Right? Then the third circle around that would be the circle of concern. And that are people that you're friends with, that you love, you're concerned about, that you, yes, sometimes hang around, but you are concerned about them because they are not walking the path they need to walk. And what he tells them, I think this is great advice, is if you're serious about walking with Jesus, what's got to happen is some of the people out of that circle of intimacy and circle of influence need to move into the circle of concern. You don't go tell them, I don't want to be your friend anymore. You just mean that I'm going to obey Proverbs 13, 20 and realize that I'm going to become like the people around me and I want to be your friend and I'm concerned about you and I want to be a part of your life, but not as a circle of intimacy or a circle of influence. Does that make sense? It's got to because I don't have any more time to spend on that. Parents, I've got, I got, I got, I got one other thing for you to think about on this. If Proverbs 13, 20 is true, right, if it really is true that if your kid hangs out with wise people, he will become wise but the companion of fools will be destroyed, then the most formative thing about your kids, would you listen to me and just pay attention really, really good for a minute? I love you, and this is why I'm saying this. That means that the most formative influence on your kids is the community they hang around. If you want to see who they will become, look at who they hang around. I'm not trying to beat you up, but I'm just telling you, like I said last week, some of you, your kids play like 15 different sports. They're always going here and there all over the place, right? And then they spend the rest of their time at their school. They hardly have a relationship with you. They never come really to our church other than on Sunday morning. They're not involved in our student ministries. They're not involved in what we do during the summer, right? And then they grow up and they go to college and they don't want anything to do with God. And you're like, I didn't raise them that way. And I just want to say, I want to say this lovingly and gently, but yes, you did. Maybe you didn't mean for them to grow up that way, but you allowed the most formative thing in their life, their companions, to be fools. It's interesting, the word for in Hebrew for the word friend is also translated as companion or neighbor. It's all the same kind of word. 
who your kids are neighbors with, who they are companions with, who they spend the most time with, is who they will look like. Friends form us. Right? Here's number two under that one. Friends save us from self-destruction. Friends form us. Friends save us from self-destruction. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Now, I'm not going to talk about this a whole lot, even though I really, really want to. By self-discipline, I'm not going to talk about this. Right? And if I start, then tell me to cut it out. Right? Because we covered this a few weeks ago. But you see, a friend can usually tell you when you're about to do something stupid and you can't see it. Right, listen, we all have blind spots. And all of us need somebody who can look us in the face and say, Bro, you are blowing it. Remember the whole path principle we've gone over in this series? You know, where you end up in life, it, what I explained is where you end up in life is determined by the path that your decisions place you on and not on your intentions. You know, I told you if I intend to go to Myrtle Beach, but I get on I-40 West, then I'll never get there no matter how sincerely I intend to get to Myrtle Beach. In the same way, your decisions are placing you on a path that's taking you somewhere, whether you intend to go there or not. Here's the thing. Your friends can usually see where the path you are on is taking you before you can. I talk to some people who just totally mess up their life. Good people. Not, not dumb people. Good people. And I'm like, did you ask anybody about this decision before you made it? Well, no, I prayed about it. I'm like, anybody with half a brain and the IQ of a toaster oven could have told you this was a bad decision. But you had a blind spot. You couldn't see it. That's why God gives us friends. Because they can plainly see what we are often blind to. Great verse in another part of the Bible where a New Testament writer talks about this. Hebrews 3.13. I'd love to just spend an hour here, but we can't. They exhort one another every day. How often? Every day. These are not, did not be exhorted by your pastor once a week. Right? Be exhorted by one another every day that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The word hardened in Greek is the word sclero. Where we get things like sclerosis, the hardening of the arteries and that kind of stuff. You, know, I, you may not be a medical person, I'm not, but I know that, that the hardening of your arteries does not happen like in an instant. You don't just like, you know, drink a thing of slack and your arteries harden. Or, you know, eat a blooming onion and then, boom, you're done, you know? It happens over years. They gradually get hardened to the place that then you're in deep trouble. And what he's saying is that the same thing that happens to many of us physically is happening to you spiritually. Your heart is continually hardening, right? And you have friends. You're supposed to have friends who can see into your life and break that hardness up. For many of you, listen, your lives are going bad because nobody is close enough to you to actually speak into your life. Your blind spots are killing you. Some of you are like, well, not me. I don't really have blind spots. I'm like, well, how do you know? Well, I just know. I, I can't see any. That's why they're called blind spots, you moron. And that's why we need friends who will tell us about what we cannot see. David Pallison, who is, in my opinion, the finest Christian counselor in America, says this. He says, quote, things in a secret garden almost always grow mutants. I know some pastors, good pastors, pastors who, in many ways, I look up to these guys, pastors I have learned from, pastors who were more charismatic, preached more powerfully, and were more influential than, than I am or in some ways ever hoped to be, that have in the last two or three years fallen into adultery. 
When you look at their lives, there's one pattern that's almost always true that these two guys I'm thinking about was definitely true. And that is where they live. It wasn't that they quit doing their quiet time. It wasn't that they quit believing in God. It wasn't that they got hooked on porn. None of those things were true of these guys. What happened is in the churches they were in, they got separated from everybody who was around them. They lived on a different plane, and nobody had the proximity or the ability to speak into their life, and they did not see the hardening of their heart until suddenly they're in the midst of a relationship that destroyed their ministry. I don't care who you are. I don't care if you're the pastor of this church or a pastor in this church, and I don't care how long you've walked with God and how much you know, how many verses you memorized. God's gift to you is the church that is able to speak into your life, and God has intended that without that, there is a certain thing that will happen in your life which will destroy you. Here's your third thing. Friends take care of us when life falls apart. Friends take care of us when life falls apart. Notice I said not if, but when. In another book that Solomon wrote right after this one, a book called Ecclesiastes, Solomon has a very interesting and, I would say, a very culturally inappropriate way of making this point. Ecclesiastes 4, listen to this. Two are better than one, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls he has nobody to help him up. So far, so good. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? In other words, when you lie down in life's cold, you need somebody to spoon with. That's right there in the Bible. And maybe that made sense to the Hebrews, but not to me, all right? <laughs> I mean, let me change the metaphor for a minute. Seriously. C.S. Lewis said this in his great book, The Problem of Pain, which is his book where he explains, probably you know, as, as one of the, the better ways it's been explained, how you deal with, with tragedy in your life. And in the preface to that book, which was one of the greatest things that he ever wrote, the preface, just the three or four pages, he says this. He says, I'm going to give you what I think is the way to think about theologically how to deal with pain in your life. He said, however, you must understand that all the theological reasoning in the world will not be able to do what the slightest touch of human sympathy can do in your life. And when you go through a hard time, what you need is not theological reasoning. What you need first is you need human sympathy. You need companionship. And you're getting this from one of the finest theologians on the problem of pain I think is out, that's out there. What's going to happen to you, not if, but when life falls apart and it's just you. Men, what's going to happen when your marriage goes into crisis? What's going to happen when your wife looks at you after 20 years and says, I've been disappointed in you for 15 years and I don't even know if I love you any longer. What are you going to do? Right? Friends are God's gift to us so that not only can they speak into our lives, but they are part of our companionship. You see, studies have shown consistently that women without a close friend, get this, are ten times more likely to go through depression. Proverbs 18.24, Solomon says this. We already read it, but let me read it again. A man of many companions may come to ruin, but there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother. When that day comes, and it will come, what you need is not a bunch of Facebook friends. What you need is a friend that loves you. I think on Facebook, I checked last night, I have something like 1,700 friends. I go on once a month and say yes to everybody, okay? 
But if I have a birthday party, most of those people are not going to get, you know, hats and little blowers. Right? These are not people that are really close to me, and these are not people that can see sinful, hardening patterns developing in my life. I don't need many friends. I need a few deep, real friendships. People that are close enough to me to look into my life and speak into it, to see when sinful patterns develop and to spoon with me in the cold, metaphorically speaking. Okay? We provide a vehicle for that here at the Summit Church. Not for spooning, okay? But for, for those relationships to develop. And that is our small groups. Here at the Summit, we want to do life together. We want to share our joys. Because life is so much better when you can share your joys with somebody. An old Hebrew proverb was, Paradise without inhabitants would be hell. It doesn't matter if you're in paradise, if you don't have anybody to share it with, you just are experiencing a fraction of the joy. We want to share each other's joys, and we want to shoulder each other's pain. Because life is just so much better when it's done in community, and you can do that, not in a huge audience. You can do it in small groups. College students, before I go here to our next thing, let me just, one thing I would encourage you with, all right? And that is that while you are here in this area, we would encourage you to be an active part, get this, of a multi-generational church in addition to being part of a campus ministry. Right? Now listen, we're not the only church, so I'm not even saying that has to be here. Right? And I'm not telling you in, in place of a campus ministry, listen, I'll be honest, I don't want you spending all your time at one of our church campuses because all the people you need to be reaching for Christ are on your campuses, not ours. So once you're involved in a campus ministry, but I'm saying in addition to that, you need to be meaningfully involved, meaningfully involved with a multi-generational church so that you can have the opportunity to benefit from the wisdom of people that are older than you and have been down life's paths a little farther than you. That is one of God's gifts to you in the church. So here's the thing with some of you guys. You got you college students, you are in a time of life when you're making some of the most significant decisions of your life. Right? And for many of you, you're only surrounded by people that are your age. Have you ever read Lord of the Flies? It didn't work out that well at the end of that book. We want to give you a chance to be a part of a Christ community here. We want you to join the church. We want you to volunteer. We even do this thing where we let families, they can adopt you, and you can make them take you out to dinner and do your laundry. And as you're doing that, you can learn some things from them. All right? We just want you to be a part. We want these most formative years of your life to be surrounded by God's gift to you, which is a multi-generational church. All right, number three, Proverbs explains to you how to be a good friend. Now, I'm going to tell you this. I, I really struggle whether to put this in here because I don't technically have time for it, and I would love to go deep into these things. What I'm going to say right now is just going to tease you a little bit on these things, but I feel like I've got to get them out there to get me to where I want to go in the end. So I'm going to give you, here are the six characteristics Proverbs gives you of what it means to be a good friend and how to choose your friends. So just buckle up and hang on, okay? And again, you can study these out on your own somewhere in Proverbs. How to be a good friend. Number one, genuineness. Genuineness. Proverbs 19.4 says this, Wealth brings many new friends. See, when you, you have something of means, a lot of people want to act like they're your friend. Have you noticed this? But of course, they're not really your friend. They're just using you for something they really want, and they think that you are the gateway to that thing. Power, influence, popularity, money, a job, you know. 
Real friendship is shown when you are in poverty. You see, wealth may bring many new friends, but poverty shows you who your real friends were or are. Some of you have gone through a tough time, and you never realized how good a certain friend was until you saw how committed they were to you when you had nothing. Has this ever happened to you? All these people that you had, all of a sudden you realize who comes to the top. A real friend walks in when everybody else walks out. And you need to make sure that you are smart enough to recognize when somebody is using you and when you, some, you find somebody who loves you for you, you need to prize that person as a treasure of invaluable worth. By the way, some of you girls especially need to be careful about this. Because your nature is you are giving and you are generous. And for whatever reason, high-maintenance, abusive guys are drawn to you like a moth to a flame who will use you for that. And you need somebody to look you in the face and tell you he doesn't care about you, and that's why he abuses you and treats you like dirt. But when he thinks he's about to lose you, oh, he'll make a big deal out of you because he doesn't want to lose his sugar mama. But all you are is a means to an end for him. He doesn't care about you at all. Right? Genuineness. Number two, constancy. This is similar to the first one. Proverbs 17, 17. A friend loves at all times. You see, for a friend to love at all times means that he loves you when you're unlovable. Because no one is lovable all the time. Right? Friends walk in when everybody else walks out. Number three, dependability. Dependability. Proverbs 25, 19. Trusting in a treacherous man in time of trouble is like a bad tooth or a, a foot that slips. Great image here. When, when you walk, most of you don't think consciously about the, the fact that your feet are, are, are contacting the terra firma, right? You don't think, you know, okay, right foot, now left foot, good, okay, right foot, it, it helps. It's just, you take it for granted. And, and, and you know that when your foot slips, because it just feels like something's wrong in the universe, doesn't it? When you, you step on something and you, it's something slippery and your, your foot goes out and your groin you know, dislocates or, or whatever, and you're just like, oh, you know, it's just what you took for granted and you depended on suddenly wasn't there. And that's what Proverbs, that's what Solomon says a bad friend is like, right? It feels like something you depended on, even took for granted, suddenly wasn't there. When a friend is undependable, that's what it's like. In other words, you tell them something and you just take it for granted that they won't repeat it. They won't repeat it. But lo and behold, it ends up on Twitter or Facebook. Right? That's one reason I never, I told you, never trust people who say to me, hey, now I promise so-and-so I wouldn't tell you this. But let me tell you this anyway. Right? Because I know that whatever they promise so-and-so, me, they're going to tell that to somebody else after they promise me not to say it. They won't be dependable to keep my secret either. Real friends are dependable. Real friends are dependable when you have a need, whether it's convenient for them or not i got a lot of people who like to be my friends, you ever notice this, but on their terms. Right? They like to be generous with me when they feel like it, not when I need it. Right? When I have a need, I know just don't ask them. I have this thing called the moving test. Right? And that's my 1,700 friends on Facebook. It's when I send out to those 1,700 friends that I'm moving, it's who shows up. Those are the real friends, not all the others. Right? A real friend is dependable in a time of need, not based on his schedule, but based on, on yours. Right, number whatever, honesty. Is this four? Honesty. Proverbs twenty four twenty six. An honest answer is the sign of true friendship. Do you see that? An honest answer is the sign of true friendship. Friends tell each other painful truths even when they're painful. 
Again, I don't want to spend a long time on this one because I talked about it a few weeks ago. But somebody who doesn't do this is not really your friend. If your friends, your, if your friends have never told you something that ticked you off, they are not your friend. Because you are not virgin born. And that means you've got a lot of flaws and a lot of blind spots. And if your friends don't speak those into your life, they're not your friends. So just think about your friends. If they've never ticked you off, just put a line through them. Not really my friend. A real friend cares enough to speak truth into you. If you see something in somebody else's life that's killing them, and you think, oh, man, it's killing them, but I just care about their feelings too much to actually say that to them, it would hurt them. What you're really saying is, I care about myself too much to put myself through the pain of actually telling them that. A lot of times I'll hear somebody say, yeah, I know they're my friend, I know they're making a big mess out of their life, but you know, it's, it's none of my business. Bullsnot. Did I actually just say that? Snot. I did say snot, okay? Bull! Friends make it their business. Friends make it their business. Honesty. An honest answer is the sign of true friendship. Here's number, uh, what are we on? Five. Empathy. Empathy. Empathy means that you feel with someone. M means in two. Path means feelings. Empathy means you enter into their feeling. A real friend feels with you, enters into your feelings. Again, Solomon has a great way of talking about this. Proverbs 27, 14. He who blesses his neighbor with a loud voice, rising early in the morning, it will be counted a curse to him. Isn't that great? I remember, I remember the first time I read that verse was in college, and it gave me a great idea, and that was the next morning for all my roommates, I put this verse into practice just to see if it was true. And I walked into the room at like 6 a.m. I'd gotten up early. I was like, just walked in the room, they're sleeping. Oh, Lord, I just pray for my friend Bruce. I pray that you would bless him and pour out things on his life. And they, they cursed me when they got up. They did not thank me for their prayers. Now, now, what is Solomon doing here? Is he just trying to be fun? No, he, he's actually, there's something behind this. A real friend is always aware of your emotions. And so they match their emotions to yours. And if they are going to bless you by speaking words of truth to you, then they realize that it hurts. And so they don't do it in the morning time when you're in a bad mood. If they're going to tell you something that will hurt you, it hurts them too. And so they enter into that emotion. Because sometimes what your friend most needs is not advice. Sometimes what your friend needs is somebody just to hurt with them. See, I've had to learn this in my marriage. My first year of marriage, my wife would come to me with some issue. And I thought I was being a good husband because I'd fix it. I remember, I remember this happened, first year of marriage. She came in and, and we both got home. We were both you know, working at the time. And she comes home and she had a flat tire. And she wouldn't tell me about that flat tire. It broke down the side of the road. Some strange guy had to stop and help her. And it scared her. And, and uh, he could get me on the phone. And, uh, and, and, and so the AAA guy. And she's going through this. And, just, and I, was like, I, was, I, was, I was like, so you're telling me that there's a flat tire in the car and I need to change the tire and make sure the other ones are okay? I, I'll fix it, you know? And then put my paper back up because I thought I had totally been a good husband. Bad idea. She, she wanted me to fix the tire, yes. But more than that, you know this, guys, if you don't know this shit in your marriage, this is Uncle J.D. is going to really share something with you. That will help right now. <laughs> she wanted me to relive that day with her and hurt with her through the day. She wanted me to experience the anxiety of having the strange guy stop. She wanted me to experience the frustration of not being able to get anybody on the phone. She wanted me to go, oh, I bet that hurt. Oh, I bet you were scared. Oh, I bet, wow, I'm just, that's what she wanted. I'm not being patronistic. I know I sound like it, but that's what she wanted. 
She wanted empathy, not honesty. Right? Empathy, when your friends hurt, you hurt. You rejoice when they rejoice. Someone that can be happy when you are sad is not a real friend. That's why it's hard to be a real friend because you tie your emotional well-being to theirs and you can't be happy when they're sad. All right, number six, boundaries. Boundaries. Real quick on this one. Proverbs twenty-five seventeen. Let your foot be seldom in your neighbor's house. Lest he have his fill of you and hate you. Amen. This is the friend who never knows when to go home. Right? They're clinging. They're always calling you, wanting to wear matching sweatshirts and ride a tandem bike and, and do everything together. They're like a golden retriever. You know, tail's always wagging, stick's always in the mouth, ready to play. Right? Listen, if you make this kind of person your roommate, your life is over. Right? These are the kind of people, you know this, who sends you an email, then text you 10 seconds later, then call 10 seconds after that to see if you got the email and the text and why you have not responded. And you're like, hey, I cannot respond to everything within seven minutes. Not that I'm talking or frustrated about anybody in particular. I'm just saying, okay? These people have deep worship issues. Their life is so out of whack with God, they're expecting you to be their surrogate God. And you just got to tell them, I am not, I'm not present. I cannot be all places at all times. I cannot meet the deepest needs of your soul. Your heart was not created with a me-shaped vacuum. Okay? And I'm not the missing piece in your life. Get right with God, and then we can actually be friends. All right? Six ways to be a good friend. Now, I probably discourage some of you. I know it's quick, but I probably discourage some of you because in these six things, you might have seen that you're not nearly as good of a friend as you thought. So where do you get this ability to be this kind of friend? Oh, this is my favorite part of this message, except for the last part. When Jesus was talking to his disciples about friendship in John 15, he says, here's all this, as I have loved you, love one another. The real ability to be a friend comes from experiencing Jesus' friendship with you. You see, Jesus did all those things that I just mentioned. Jesus' love was genuine. We know that because he gave up the universe for us. Jesus' love was constant. He loved us when we were at our most unlovely. Jesus' love was dependable. And I know that if he did not leave me when I was in sin and dead in sin, that he will not leave me now. Jesus' love was honest. He told me what I needed to hear even when it made me mad enough to crucify him. Jesus' love was empathetic. He not only entered into my pain and wept when I wept, he actually took my pain upon himself. What a friend we have in Jesus. When you experience that, you see, you will become a good friend. You won't have to use people anymore because the thirst of your soul for eternal love will have been stated because you are now loved by the God of the universe and you are accepted and approved by the only one whose opinion really matters anyway. And you will have learned how to love a friend. And so when people let you down, it won't devastate you as much. Because you will see that God accepted you as you were, screwed up as you were. And you'll be empowered now to love others in that way. You see, real love is to be known and loved. To be known but not loved is rejection. But to be loved without really being known is just sentimentalism. Jesus knew us and loved us. He knew us completely and loved us thoroughly. The gospel is that though we are more wicked than we ever realized, 
We are more loved and treasured by God than we ever dreamed or hoped for, both at the same time. Having been loved this way, having been known and loved, we can love others. Real friendship is the expression and the extension of the gospel. Do you get that? It is the expression and the extension of the gospel. Last thing, how to make friends at the Summit Church. This is number four. Small groups. I told you we were getting here. My, our small groups pastor and I came up with what we consider to be the top reasons why people give to us why they don't want to be in a small group. I'm going to set all these up, and then like we're playing whack-a-mole at the fair, I'm going to knock all of them down. You ready? This is, buckle up. Number one, I'm too busy. I hear this all the time. I'm too busy. I don't have time. It's another night of the week. Well, based on what I've shared with you today, I would like for you to think that you don't have time not to be in a group. All the things that are most important to you in life would be radically helped by being in a believing community. Without that community around you, you might very well shipwreck your life. Your marriage might fall apart because there's no one around to support you guys and watch over you. Your kids might go astray because they grow up around the wrong community. And when you go through tragedy, you'll go through it alone. Yes, I know you're busy, but I'm trying to tell you, I don't think you have time to not do this. Because getting together with a small group on a weekly basis takes a whole lot less time than picking up the pieces of a shattered marriage. I promise you that. Number two, I don't want people knowing my business. I know. I'm talking to you, okay? Or I'm talking to some of your husbands. Maybe that's better. Here's the deal on this one. God already knows your personal business. All right? Newsflash. And if that troubles you less than the idea of a fellow sinner who has baggage of his own knowing your business, then you've got a huge misunderstanding of the, of the holiness of God. If your personal business is sin, the worst thing you can do is to keep that jump between you and the devil, hoping God doesn't find out or doesn't care. Plus, nobody's going to ask you about your personal business this week in your small group. This is not interrogation groups. To my knowledge, waterboarding has never been a part of any small group experience. Let me ask you, if you had a close friend, a really close friend, you wouldn't mind sharing your personal business with them, right? Well, small group is a place for you to build those friendships. And then when you're ready, when you're ready, you can share whatever you want. Small groups are simply the place for those relationships to happen. And if they happen, then you can do that. <laughs> Number three, for you guys, any form, guys, any form of a small group circle is lame. i got no desire to sit around and be vulnerable. Pass the wings and the beer, right? I'm really sensitive to this one because I feel like most churches are designed for women. No offense to you women, but let me just say this to the guys. I'll appreciate this. I feel like most churches, the praise service sounds like you're singing songs written by the Jonas Brothers where you invite Jesus to hold you in his arms and blow in your face. And then, you know, some guy uh, gets up in a, a sweater vest and sits on a stool and talks about his feelings and his you know, encourages you to do your quiet time in the morning and then go to small group where you can do prayer and share. And I hate that. I'm just going to tell you right up front, I hate that. Church is also for men here at the summit, and so are our small groups. We're not asking you to get together and gush your feelings all over the place. We're asking you to have a friend and be a friend. And sharing life, by the way, is only girly to those men who are too insecure about their manhood to talk about anything other than girls or in sports and beer. So if you're afraid it's too girly, the truth is you are probably the girly one and you need to get in a group <laughs> so we can teach you what a real man looks like, all right? 
Number four, I got kids and I can't afford a babysitter. We provide child care for every small group. Either your group will take care of it at your meeting and then use our voucher system where we will reimburse you for the majority of, of the child care expenses, or you can bring them here at one of our times we offer child care and put them in that. We think it's that important. We will provide child care for you. All right, so mark that one off. All right, I've had a bad experience with a group in the past. All right, well, fair enough, but obviously if not at the summit, then you need to try one of ours because we got like groups 2.0. we got the Mac version of small groups, all right? They don't crash nearly as bad, right? You're like, well, I had a bad experience at the summit. Well, then why don't you lead a new group? Or better yet, what if we use this biblical understanding of friendship to alter how you look at small group, right? Maybe you and your small group will start to realize that not everybody's perfect. And oh, by the way, some people may think you're lame too. You're probably not near as cool as you think you are. And somebody's probably not small group because of you. Right? Maybe you could get together in a group that is established not on legalistic Pharisee self-righteousness, but, is, but is, is based on grace and love and accepting people as they are. So write, mark that one off, you Pharisee. Number whatever. I don't need one. I already got friends. Really? Are you intentionally investing in those people? Are you growing together? Well, a small group is not a social club. It is Acts 2, biblical community. Do you have that? All right. Last one. Por que son en inglés? Ya no más. Ain't no longer, all right? Not true anymore. We got them in Spanish right down the hall on Saturday night, all right? But there you are. There are your seven objections, and I think we sufficiently dealt with them. Why don't you watch this screen up here, and then our campus pastors will tell us what we need to do. after getting married and our small group was really a great way to connect with people and had really instant accountability. Um, we had people who were older than us and had been married for 30 years to people who were married just a couple months as well and so it was really great for us to have people that could kind of